Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, finally, justice in the murder of a hip hop legend. Two decades after the murder of Run DMC's Jam Master Jay, a New York jury has convicted two men of his murder. But first, a man down on his luck is taken in by a family in Texas and shown kindness. Police say he repaid them by taking and killing their 11-year-old daughter. Police say the man even pretended to help search for the girl. The little girl's body was found tied to a rock in a nearby river. We are recording this on Wednesday, February 28th of 2023. Our guest today is Sarah Azari, a criminal trial attorney and legal host of ID's Death by Fame. Sarah, welcome back. It's been a while. It's so great to have you. Great to be with you, Anna. Looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. I know you've been super busy. You're like, you're everywhere. You have a podcast, you're doing commentary. You're like, every time I turn on the TV, there you are. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. It's, what I'm trying to say is we feel privileged to be able to have you here today because you're so busy. Thanks for having me. My honor. Absolutely. So let's get to our first case, which is incredibly disturbing. Many of you um, may have heard this in the news because it made national headlines. This case is out of Livingston, Texas, where police say that a friend of the family who had a criminal record of hurting children specifically is allegedly responsible for killing the family's daughter. The victim is 11-year-old. Audrey Cunningham, and the man charged with her murder is 42-year-old Don McDougal. The case made those headlines because Audrey went missing a little after her 11th birthday. Um, I remember just having the news on, Sarah, and um, police were asking for everyone's help because they were searching for a little girl who had not come home from school that day, as far as the parents knew. Mm -hmm. And there was an Amber Alert and the whole community is searching for this child. Mm-hmm. And what I think is so painful for all of us to process is, one, who would ever hurt a child? This is beyond what anyone can comprehend. And then the, really the second part that is, um, I think, so painful for us to process as well is the man who's accused here is a man who was brought in by this family. He was given a second chance because the family's very religious and they felt that they should give someone down on their luck an opportunity. And instead they let the devil in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no good deed goes unpunished. Right. Truly. Mm-hmm. And I think, 
as as the parents, um, I'm very careful not to shift blame uh, of criminality on parents. But even though this man was not a registered sex offender, and I'm sure we'll get into that in the in the conversation, um, he still had a pretty robust a rap sheet, a criminal record. And I feel like if these parents knew enough about him that they were giving him a second chance, a background check or some kind of further look into his past, um, I think would, would have been really concerning. I think, you know, he, he had at a minimum had an armed robbery. I mean, I, I don't think I would want someone like that around my children or my home. Um, and yet, I don't know if the parents knew about that or did anything to to sort of, um, uh, you know, look at, look further into his background. But but that certainly was there. So the fact that he wasn't a registered sex offender that's because he negotiated a plea, which he's entitled to do, and he avoided a registrable offense, um, which I do for all my clients. I try to do at least. And, and so that's why that wasn't there and he wasn't registering. But what about the rest of the stuff? I mean, even that stuff alone is concerning. It's been interesting, Sarah, because the, the family actually put out a lengthy statement, and we're going to include a part of that um, in a second here, because they feel, the family feels that here they are grieving the loss of their daughter. Um, every parent, no matter what, we all blame ourselves. Somehow it's always because we're responsible for the safety of our children. But they feel like they are really being beaten up um, by people on social media, blaming them for all of this. Mm -hmm. And um, the families pushed back saying, this is incredibly hurtful. We have lost our child. We feel horrible about this. Had we known so much about him, or as much as we know now, they would have never let him near their family. Um, it's and I also think religion plays a big part in this. You brought that up. You know, I've had victims of crime who've been, you know, devout Christians. I just had a case recently, and much to my surprise, uh, they reached out to me saying they're willing to write a letter, um, essentially asking for mercy for my client because my client, you know, they understood my client's afflictions and why he did what he did. I mean, I mean it's shocking to me, right? So there is a lot of, I don't think we can take these parents out of context either. You know, they were really good um, spiritual people who were trying to do good and, and many people deserve that kindness, but clearly this guy didn't, obviously. Yeah. And that's what's so sad here. That is what's so sad. You have a well-meaning family trying to do the right thing. And um, my God, it, it is the worst possible outcome. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. A little bit about the living situation and the family here. So Audrey and her parents live in a suburb right outside Houston. 
And the little girl was well known to the neighbors because she loved to volunteer to walk the dogs. Such a sweet child who shared to anyone who would listen that she either wanted to be a veterinarian or an animal trainer. She just loved animals. Now, Don McDougall, the man who's accused here, was a friend of the family who lived in a camper on the family's property. And apparently, um, like we said, the Cunninghams knew about some of his background. Uh, They apparently didn't know all of the horrible details here. So uh, the family says that on February 15th, that Don drove Audrey to the bus stop at around 7 a.m. The family has told authorities that oftentimes that if Audrey missed the school bus, that Don would take her to school and he was, you know, considered a friend of the family. Obviously, you know, you just don't let anyone take your child in a car somewhere. So on this day, Audrey never came home from school. It was 7 p.m. when the parents finally alerted the authorities and there was a statewide Amber Alert. Now, um, according to the school that Audrey attended, they said that She never arrived on the school bus that day, which means most likely she never even got on the school bus that day. And he was, by everyone's account, the last person to see Audrey alive. So it's interesting, Sarah, they did not arrest him immediately. And uh, apparently he took part in the search for Audrey, which always drives me nuts when people do that. Right, it's a great cover-up, right? Uh, let me try to find the body for you. Uh, that he, um, it, it's strong circumstantial evidence um, when a suspect is the last person seen, you know, with with the missing person. Um, but it's not enough. It's certainly not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think in this case, there was a lot more. So I think that just being the last person seen in this context was not enough. But there was a lot more there. And to your point, you know, he had done this before. He had taken, they they didn't just trust him on their property. They trusted him with Audrey. They He had taken her to school before. He had picked her up before. So it wasn't unusual um, for him to at least appear to be doing that on this day, except it was a different day. A very different day with a very different outcome. It actually, the, the search for Audrey took several days before they found her her body. So what's interesting here is, you know, I said this received a lot of media attention, especially in the Texas area. So police received a very unusual tip. It wasn't necessarily about Audrey. It was about Don, the man who drove her to allegedly was, well, the man who said he was going to drive her to school that day to the school bus. Someone recognized Don from television and the the person who talked to police said, look, I remember him. He was with, he had a female accomplice at the time. I was attacked by him. There was some kind of a setup where they were claiming their car broken down, something like that, but I was attacked and he's the one. So it's interesting that authorities take that very seriously and actually arrest Don on this unrelated charge based on a call during the investigation, before Audrey's body is even found. Do you find that interesting that they would make an instant arrest like that? 
Well, I think that they had certainly had probable cause to arrest. You've got the victim of a crime saying that they were assaulted. And so that's enough to arrest him. And it is a serious violent crime. In most states, it's a strike. Yes, absolutely. Although it didn't seem, you know, especially if, again, he's accused, presumed innocent until proven otherwise. But it's not like when Audrey disappeared, it's not like he fled. He stayed there and continued the search. Right. I mean, that's, you know, um, as defense attorney of almost 20 years, there's different levels of criminality. Um, You know, most of my clients are regular people, normal psyches. They make a mistake. They violate the law. Sometimes there's greed. Sometimes there's other factors. But there are people who are straight up sociopaths, you know, and they will engage in this sort of post-murderous conduct of covering up. Wow. Well, on February 16th, investigators found Audrey's Hello Kitty backpack near a dam on Lake Livingston. It was soaking wet. And, um, you know, we have to remember that at the center of this crime is an 11-year-old child who is as innocent as they get. And nothing, I mean, when I think of a Hello Kitty backpack and the innocence of it and whatever cute little dangly thing she may have attached to it and her notes and you know, maybe her lip balm and all the little things that are in there and her pencils and the innocence and the joy of life. Um, This is just brutal, 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 brutal. So on the same day that they find the backpack is when they arrest Don on this unrelated charge that's been called in. So about five days after Audrey's disappearance on February 20th, police dive teams made the grim discovery Audrey's body was in the Trinity River, which straddles two counties, and her body was tied to a rock with this rope that police believe he has a matching section of that rope. Um, I just I can't even I can't even imagine. I think of her last minutes of life and the terror and. I they they have not said, you know, we don't know whether she was placed in that river alive or dead. I don't know. I I don't know. It's all just or how much she had suffered, how much she was tortured. Um, We all we know is that it was homicide, obviously, but we don't really know the details of those, you know, last moments um, before she died. And I think stronger. Obviously, this is a very strong circumstantial case. It's a a lot of you get a lot of convictions by circumstantial evidence. Yeah. People somehow think that it's weaker. No, it's not. And when you have this sort of totality, um, it's really damning because more than just the rope, if it was just the rope, I'd say, well, you know, Home Depot rope, it could be used for different things. But we have a digital footprint here. We have cell phone data. We have video footage that places Don's um, car um, to the locations between the Audrey's home, the Cunningham residence, and where her body was found. I mean, that's pretty damning. That's pretty damning. Um, so really, I mean, I, I look, I host a podcast called The Presumption, which is all about the presumption of innocence. And I sort of look at cases from that lens. And I'm here to tell you, this is a pretty strong case of guilt. Yeah. The 
Police have said that she died of blunt force trauma to the head. It is clearly a homicide, but again, there are a lot of details that have not been released yet. And as I always say, you know, every police department is different. Some release an incredible amount of information of what authorities call the evidence. Others, very little. It really depends on the investigating agency and the prosecutors in that case. And you want justice for everyone here. You want justice for Audrey. You want justice for the criminal, the suspect. You you know, everyone here, justice for everyone. So I, I think you're right, Sarah. I think this evidence is very damning and damaging. The rope, the location, you know, placing him through his cell phone data, all of that is, is very, very damaging. So finally, on February 21st, Don is charged with capital murder, and he was already being held on that assault charge. Right. So he's in custody without bond. Um, we've talked about some of his rap sheet, but let's talk a little bit more in depth, which I think is what's so chilling here. So he had a previous conviction for a sex-related offense against a child, Sarah, which you made mention of where... He was not, because of this offense, he was not listed as a sex offender, which of course is going to make everyone just lose their mind because if the crime was against a child and it, the, and it was a sexual crime, to not have the ability for the rest of us to know that as far as building our safety nets or, or the safety nets that we build that we think will keep us and our family safe, it's um, it's very upsetting, Sarah. It's very upsetting that he was not listed. So the, the case that um, we're all talking about, this goes back to 2007. And there was an incident at the victim's home. Right. There was a 10-year-old child involved here. The victim claims that Dawn attempted to remove her pants as the family was sleeping. She was able to get away call her aunt to help her. But as you said, in the state of Texas, this is not something that would have fallen under that. But when I hear something like that, it it undoes me. Yeah, it's, it it's just, infuriating. It's it infuriating. just undoes me. And, and I also, but I also have to say, we don't know the circumstances of Audrey's death. We don't know if she was sexually violated, if there was anything um, that even related to that, you know, prior sex offense against a minor that became enticing, you know, lesser, a lesser charge. And again, I'm not blaming the parents, but with these parents, I, I don't know. I mean, if they're giving a, this guy a chance, isn't it explainable that, you know what, I only pled to this enticing thing. I've turned my life around. That was 2007. I'm a new man. Give me a chance. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what these parents may have been, you know, I, because again, it was not a, it was not a sex offense that he pled to. I don't know. No would have known just by looking at his record, even if he was registering, what exactly he had done. I don't know. It's And he's, according to his record, he's done just about everything. Assault, battery, <laughs> theft, right? I mean, you name it, That's it's true. on there. You just, just look at the rap sheet. So yeah. almost a dozen offenses, either arrests or charges. So it's not like a one time I made a mistake. Yeah. Th this is a way of life. 
This is a way of life. So the family says, you know, they're just being vilified here on social media while they're still trying to grieve the loss of their child. So they released a statement. Here's here's a part of it that addresses what everyone is saying here. Um, and again, not putting blame anywhere here. This is This is what they had to say. Unfortunately, the system failed us due to a loophole in the sex offender registration system. Don Stephen McDougall had a history of disrespect for young female children, but it did not show up when we checked the registry before allowing him to stay in an old camper on our backyard while he tried to start a new life. Had we been aware of what we know now, this man would have never set foot on our proper property, much less be a part of our little girl's life. And this is attributed to Audrey's grandmother and father. It is just a tragedy. No matter how you look at it, this, this whole case is a tragedy, a tragedy. So on March 1st, Audrey will have a public memorial service. It will be held at Livingston Baptist Church. And the family has asked those attending to wear purple because that was our favorite color. Our next case is out of New York where a jury has just convicted two men in the murder of hip hop legend Jam Master J of Run DMC. Uh, honestly, when I think of Run DMC, I think of the soundtrack of my youth and I just, I can't even talk about this, this <laughs> hip hop group without Tricky not playing in my head. I mean, I just, oh, I just, it was you know, quite the era. I'm an old hip hop girl, so. Yeah, yeah. And so this case was unsolved for so long, Sarah. And I know that this is a case that you have looked into on your series on investigation discovery. So I know you've got a lot of insight in this. I'm just going to just give the, the headline here and I'm going to hand this one over to you because you've got so much knowledge on this. So um, the murder of Jam Master Jay, born Jason Mizell, happened back in 2002 in a Queens recording studio. He was, this case was unsolved until recently. He was 37 years old at the time of his death. Police say that the motive was a deal gone bad, a drug deal gone bad. According to prosecutors, Jam Master Jay was apparently moving kilos of cocaine in addition, you know, to top in the charts there. So 59-year-old Ronald Washington and 40-year-old Carl Jordan Jr. were convicted of murder Tuesday of this week. The victim knew both of them. Ronald was a childhood friend and Carl was his godson. So the crime occurred in October of um, 2002. So the question here, Sarah, if these were people, and, 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 and you can really explain this, it's not like it was just the three of them in the recording studio that no. day. <laughs> no, it was a full studio. That's what was mind boggling to me um, is that, you know, well, first of all, I think um, that just the idea, I like, you know, many other Americans, um, it's really hard to to reconcile that this legend in the hip hop world um, that you grew up listening to became a drug dealer. Like you just don't want to believe that. You don't want to believe the fall from fame, you know? And, um, and then I was really upset that it has taken so long to bring this case to justice. 
And because there were so many eyewitnesses there um, and everyone very carefully and cleverly distanced, distanced themselves from the crime scene, crime scene, even though they were there. So one person was like, oh, something dropped on the floor. I bent down to get it. So I didn't really see the other person's like, oh, I was just outside. You know, I walked through after I heard the, gu the, the gunshot. So everyone had a story to tell. And I think the bigger picture or the overarching issue was that this was a time where there was a code of silence in the hip hop world. You know, um, hip hop had become gangster rap and you had East Coast versus West Coast and um, Tupac getting killed, you know, Jam Master Jay getting killed. And and no one wanted to talk. It was just a very small, incestuous circle. Nobody felt safe. Nobody wanted to come forward. And so this investigation stalled, not really because the, you know, the, the police department failed, but just because the witnesses weren't cooperating. And so my concern in this trial was that at best it would it would hank. Uh, because even though now these witnesses were willing to come forward, they again got cold feet. So early on in the trial, the prosecutors were telling the court, oh, we don't know if they're going to come in. We don't know if they're going to want to, you know, they might lie under oath. They might invoke their fifth somehow. So uh, we're concerned. And I thought, oh, my God. And you have, Anna, as you know, um, eyewitness accounts are weak evidence, right? right. And you have clouded, eroded memories over, you know, almost two decades. Um, so of course the, the defense got up and said, this person doesn't know it's too long. It's like too long ago. You know, they've been fed by law enforcement. They're just adopting the story and the narrative in the media. And obviously the jury didn't buy it. So I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised that there was justice in this case. And we have to remember there's a third man, Jay Bryant, who was going to go to trial and his role was a little bit different, um, but nonetheless, you know, he was there and um, and there's evidence, I think there's DNA evidence with respect to him. So uh, that's another piece of all of this. And my understanding is when the verdict was read this week that, you know, people erupted in the courtroom because there are still factions and family and friends of the two men who've been convicted screaming, they didn't do it. This isn't right. You know, <laughs> we're not done here. Yeah. And Washington himself was kicking and screaming, you know, interesting with Washington. He wasn't just blaming the credibility of the witnesses or eyewitnesses. He was also saying I was one of the people that was dependent on JMJ. You know, he was financially supporting me like many other people, even though he had no money coming in. He was bleeding money out. And like many celebrities, he was, you know, people were dependent on him financially, including Washington. So one of part of Washington's defense was, why would I kill the hand that's feeding me? Well, that didn't apparently wasn't plausible either uh, um, because because you got cut out of a drug deal. You know, I mean, that's that, that's, that was the reason, right, Sarah, that the, <laughs> the motivation was that these two who have been convicted were being cut out of a very profitable drug deal. Yes, it was a man out of Baltimore. You know, the JMJ was very um, uh, close with people that he grew up in, um, in Queens. And he was always loyal to them. So when he rose to fame, he brought them in, you know, in different roles. And when he was falling from fame, uh, he was still helping these people financially. And when he got into drug trafficking, he was still dealing with those folks. So there was a friend that he had in Baltimore who was um, putting together a big 
you know, drug deal. And what was happening was JMJ was going to sort of work on that drug deal, liquidating the drugs with Washington and Carl Jordan. And then the guy in Baltimore didn't want them as part of the deal. And so JMJ ended up, basically this tiff occurred because they were getting cut out. And so the prosecution said, this is greed and revenge, simply put. And, you know, I'm really thrilled that, you know, you would think of a murder case as being um, adjudicated in a county court, right? Why isn't this in some courthouse in Brooklyn? I mean, in uh, Queens. Uh, instead, it's in federal court in Brooklyn. And that's a big, uh, big bonus in this case. And why? Why was it? Because of the drug trafficking, it became a federal crime. You know, oh. killing during the course of drug narcotic, you know, drug trafficking, narcotic trafficking, made it a federal offense, which, you know, I mean, that's a whole other level of, you know, resources, right? You've got the FBI involved, you've got more money, you've got better investigation. So I think that is a large part of why, you know, these men were finally brought to justice. Amazing that it took this long. I also found it interesting, you know, um, I read that there had been surveillance cameras, but apparently the entrance of how the two now convicted killers got in, there was an area that was not covered by surveillance cameras further hampering uh, this investigation. Right, oh because then you had to rely on the eyewitnesses. And by the way, the, the receptionist in the sound studio that let those men in, because you had to get buzzed in, was like the cousin of one of these men. <laughs> and when she was asked, what did you see? She was like, something dropped and I had to pick it up. So I didn't really see the actual moment of who pulled the trigger. I mean, you know, um, that's how it all went down. But the retribution, the feeling, the fear and the retribution, I mean, this is this is real. And um, while he was a music legend, this world, this underworld of drug dealing is that is a whole other operation. I mean, that is very dark. scary, right? Yeah. yeah, dark. And there's always, you know, I mean, in any case where uh, narcotic trafficking cases, especially in federal court, um, are brought to justice through cooperation by people lower in the, you know, in the hierarchy. Um, so that's, you know, we call them snitches, <laughs> depending on who you are, you might call them snitches. So they roll, you know, they roll on the other one and the other one. And in this case, it was, it was a murder. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I look, I think it's a different environment now in that world, um, which is why these people were willing to come forward. I, I can't say it's ever safe, but I think they, they felt more comfortable um, talking about what they saw. So Ronald and Carl each faced 20 years to life um, sentence on this conviction and their alleged co-conspirator conspirator who you've named, Jay Bryant, is set to face trial in January of 2026. That is a long way away. I don't know what, why that delay, uh, what that delay is about. I don't know if there's any sort of competency issues or um, that's unusual. Right. Uh, typically, you have a trial set date within, you know, within a year or so, and then you could kick that ball down the road as many times as you need to. But to have a trial date almost two years away from now is is unusual to me. So um, I'm wondering what, I, I don't know what that is, uh, 
you know, with mm-hmm. that. So this is one of the cases that you describe on death by fame. What um, explain to me how um, what the premise of death by fame is? Yeah. So I, with respect to this case, I really invite your audience to tune in. It's the grand finale called Off the Record. Um, it, it airs in a couple of weeks, and why it's important is because. Uh, facts and circumstances don't always make it into evidence in a courtroom. And in this case, we didn't even have cameras because federal courthouses don't allow cameras in, in, in court. So it's really interesting to just watch and see what went down because then you can really put this verdict into context. But Death by Fame is, is a very fascinating, um, series that Investigation Discovery put out. We're in season two. And I think the reason it's successful is because it's like the perfect marriage of Hollywood celebrity and fame with true crime. And we don't cover these sort of big headline cases that are in the zeitgeist, but we really kind of take a deep dive into the sinister side of fame, the idea that there's a price to pay for fame that people don't recognize. Not everybody becomes famous. There's rejection that leads to mental illness. It can lead to death. And sometimes that darkness is brought on just by that access that now social media gives to people that are up and, you know, up and coming, you know, rising stars. And sometimes it's um, because that person sort of falls off the, the you know, the rails, right? And something happens and they start, um, they go from an acting career to a career in crime. And so there's those episodes too. And so it's a really interesting series. And this season specifically, there's eight episodes. You can catch what you missed on HBO Max. Um, so different, you know, we talk about James Brown, you know, potentially could have been murdered, uh, not died of a congestive heart failure. We talk about a um, graphic novelist who scalped uh, the mother of his to-be child, um, just heinous, brutal. And we talk about a Hollywood future, you know, child actor, actress who um, got drawn into a gang and got murdered, shot down. I mean, the, the cases are so different, but all so important because they sort of highlight, um, you know, we highlight domestic violence. We highlight how reality TV is a new way for regular people to become famous, but there's dangers with that too. You know, there's concerns with that too. So I invite all your viewers to give it a shot and tune in because I don't think you're going to want to miss an episode. Wow. Thank you, Sarah. This has been great. It's been lovely to have you on the program. Thank you. Good to be with you, Anna, again. Um, Sarah, where can people find you, follow you on social media? Because I know you're so busy in your podcast and all that. Yeah, sure. So on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, well, Instagram, Twitter, at Azari Law, and I think YouTube, it's Azari Law. And my website is azarilaw.com. And I have a podcast called The Presumption. I co-host the podcast with Alec Murdoch's defense lawyer, those of you who followed that case, um, mm-hmm. and all the podcast platforms and on YouTube. So please follow me and please engage. Wow. Wow. You are one busy woman. <laughs> like and you you're defending people. <laughs> Got to catch up with you. Yes, I am. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, you can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. You can find... Uh, this episode of our podcast, all our episodes, wherever you get your podcasts, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. (laughs) 